17 through chapter 4, verse 1. And then we're also going to be looking at Lord's Day 17 out of the Heidelberg Catechism in the back of the hymnal. Flip back to the series that I was doing in, in the times that I was doing them again. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 18 again tonight because while we focused on one verse last time, there's a lot more to cover there. So we'll try to do a little bit of that tonight. But this morning we're going to be considering focusing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, considering Lord's Day 17, that speaks to that as we are also focusing, of course, on our Christian faith that we believe that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day. You can find uh, Lord's Day 17 on page 24 in the back of the hymnal. We'll take a look, first of all, at Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 to chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brother, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We thank the Lord for that portion of His Word, and we want to take a look also, having read from God's Word, that it might shine on our confession as it does in Lord's Day 17, question 45, where the question gets asked, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? And there's three benefits that are mentioned. First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make a share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already now resurrected to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. May God's word be truly a blessing for us this morning. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think many of us know that when we read through the letter of Philippians, that there's many references there to rejoicing and to joy. And that's why that letter of the Philippians has, been come, has come to be known as the letter of joy. It's an interesting thing because uh, I find that in other scriptures as well, like when I look at First Peter, which is a very, and you probably know that, a very precious passage and letter to me, that uh, 
Peter spends a lot of time talking about the calls to peace, calls to harmony, and that those who seek peace and pursue it uh, are, are those who are following the Lord's way. And yet he talks in the same vein about how there is one place where there's a battle that goes on, and that battle is that you're fighting against the sinful desires that war against your soul. Well, here in this letter of joy, you have something rather fascinating also. Because with all the talk about joy that uh, the Apostle Paul remarkably conveys in the letter to the Philippians, here in this portion that we just read is an instance where Paul's not happy. He's sad. He mentions that He's often told you and now tells you, even with tears, that there are those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. In the letter of joy, you have a spot there in which he speaks about the tears that he shed. It's sad to see when people are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. And what what really saddens the joyous apostle are lives then that are that are lived in contrast to what he's talking about here, and that's the Christian call to live like heavenly citizens. As people end up confusing Christian liberty with license to sin. Christian freedom with an attitude that says, well, I can just do whatever I want. What causes this is what Paul calls a dwelling on earthly things. Not seeing that behavior here on earth should express the heavenly hope that's found in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ who reigns in heaven. So this morning we're focusing, before we get to the communion table where we proclaim the Lord's death until He returns, uh, we focus on the blessing of Christ's resurrection as Scripture calls us to live as heavenly citizens. And we want to look at that as, a, as an imitating way, a contrasting way, and an anticipatory way. It's an imitating life, a contrasting life, and it's an anticipated or an anticipating kind of life. So to live in that imitative way or to live in that imitative, to live that imitated life as heavenly citizens, uh, that carries a presumption with it when the Apostle's bringing that out. Paul, after all, is concerned, as I mentioned, with two extremes, really, here. On the one hand, he's concerned about legalism, and on the other hand, he's concerned about license. License to sin. On the one hand, he's concerned about those who want to justify themselves by way of the law. Because we're not justified by keeping the law. He says himself earlier that if anybody was qualified to do that, it was he. But he says that's not how it's done. It's done by the resurrected Jesus Christ. He is resurrected, after all, as Romans would say, for our justification. Which, of course, is addressed in our Lord's day as well when it says by his resurrection he's overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. He was raised for our justification. Because he lives, he must have done all things well. He must have been perfectly obedient. 
And because he was, for the glory of God, for the benefit of those who came to save, he's able to justify those who belong to him. They are, as he says at the beginning of this passage, and he says at the end of this passage, he says, well, there, well, he, he speaks about himself as brothers to them, but then these brothers are brothers in the Lord. They're Christ's brothers. They're children of the Father. That's why Paul could speak of them as he does here, as brothers. He's not talking about his relatives of the flesh. He's not talking about the fact that he's of the same ethnicity as these other people in Philippi, because that probably wasn't true either. No, he's speaking about them as spiritual brothers. Those who have been adopted by Christ. Those who are in Christ. And so the presumption then is he's calling these people to heavenly citizenship. Is that the life of the heavenly citizen is the life of somebody who is justified by Christ, adopted by Christ, and renewed by God's Spirit and belonging to the Father. There's no need to be sitting here talking about how good you ought to live and how nice you ought to be and, and how heavenly you ought to have your life be unless justification in Christ alone is at our foundation. That's the presumption. On the other hand, though, while legalism is supposed to be avoided here as we speak about the heavenly life, so is this license to sin, this uh, libertinism, we might call it, this liberty to do whatever we feel like. No, those justified in Christ, called to the heavenly life, have to live like the family. They have to live like God, their father. Christ, their brother. To be godly. To resemble their father in heaven spiritually. Not falling far from the tree that way. So what helps us to avoid, says the Apostle Paul, that, that license, that licentious kind of way, that libertine kind of way of living? Well, Paul says what helps for us to do as he also concludes when he's telling us that we ought to... Uh, stand firm thus in the Lord, to hold on to the faith that way, is to live with a godly vision in various ways, and particularly, he mentions here, by imitating those who are worthy of imitation. He says that right off. Join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk accordingly to the example of you have in us. Put your eyes on good examples. Be around people that have that kind of spirit. Learn from them. Imitate them. The apostle in this letter of the Philippians speaks a lot about reflection, about imitation. We know later on he's going to speak about dwelling on what's good noble, so on, and that part of that, he says, includes the calling to imitate 
him as an apostle. It's not because he's perfect. Not in any stretch. He admits that this is not true about any of us. But he does say that what you've heard from him apostolically and seen in him are to be put into practice and the God of peace would be with you. He would say in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. And so those who are leading in the church, they, they have a weighty calling that way, don't they? Because leaders lead. People follow them. And those who are leading in the church should be worthy of imitation. We should be able to look to our church leaders that way and, and, and find in them right the kind of example that's worthy of following. Which, of course, on the other hand, tells us, so don't ignore their example either. If you look at your leaders and you say, boy, those are dependable people. They're always there. They're, they're always carrying out what they're supposed to be doing. They're taking it up the, up the charge. They're saying, here I am. I'm going to help. And they're, they're in the midst of the fellowship. That shouldn't be ignored. That should be, that should be followed and imitated. We should be able to look at our church leaders that way as, as those worthy of, of following. It, and it reminds us again, you know, it's, it's a blessing that we're able to be face-to-face -face again in worship. We can be present in worship as, as, as much as it can be. We realize there's people that have difficulty being able to, to come uh, to worship. But it is to our advantage to be taking advantage of every opportunity that we have to be in the midst of the church of Jesus Christ from week to week in worship. Because among other things, while we're praising God, uh, we also get to take advantage of the communing that we have with examples like our leaders, for instance. We're in their midst. We get to see them. We can talk to them. We can talk to other people that we know that are, that are like that. And, and so we, in turn, then can see how we ought to conduct ourselves by way of Christian example. Because while we're in the midst of worship, we're here with God's people, then we too can be that example that we need to be because we're not islands. Right? We have an impact. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But, and and that's, that's certainly made clear to us in the communion table too. That the, the Lord's Supper is the communion where we all partake of the one bread. We're not disconnected. We're connected. And thankfully, the Apostle gives us the greatest example in the risen Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 2 because you know, any of us could sit here and say, well, I'm not... I'm not always the example that I ought to be, but thankfully Jesus Christ is. So that's why he would say in Philippians 2, your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and obeyed to the point of death on a cross, which is what led to the glory for him, the resurrected glory for him, and for those who belong to him. Humility and obedience were hallmarks for Christ. And if you're looking for an example for life, there it is. Humility, obedience. 
we're Christians, we put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator, conformed to the image of God's Son. And Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, who makes us right with God as one of his resurrection benefits, we also find a Lord whose new life is reflected in the new life that we are given and are called to live. We're raised to new life in Him. The Catechism speaks about that too. By His power, we too are already now resurrected to a new life. That's that second resurrection blessing. But our ultimate example then, and we thank God for that, is our raised Savior. The identity crisis of humanity is real and common, though. The identity crisis of humanity is a failure to understand that we were made in the image of God and that outside of Christ, instead of reflecting God and His Christ, we want to reflect something else. And that something else is God-less. And people, we've said it before, people like to act as if they don't model anybody or that, that they don't... They're not, they're not models for anybody. And that's just denying oneself. You can't escape that. God made you like that. We do imitate others, and we want to be like someone else. We model things in our families and those things we hold dear, where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. We cannot help but be an example to others who will see us. We can't help but be an example to other people either for good or evil. So the way that we stand firm in the Lord is, is that we find good biblical examples. Examples like Paul who tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. You know, to be, in other words, to be, to be in praise of God because that's what God made us to be. That shouldn't be a secondary thing for us. It should be a primary thing for us. To be thankful, uh, to be praying, to dwell on what's good, to keep our eyes on the godly, to take advantage of those opportunities to, to be in their midst, and to keep our eye of hope fixed upon heaven from where Jesus Christ will come. Yes, rejoicing in the Lord, praising Him regularly, making us stronger in the Lord in the process. That's, that's a blessing too. And at the same time, this passage reminds us that when we live in this imitating way, we will be people who will also be worthy of imitation. And we'll help others call to live like heavenly beings here on earth as well. We'll be a blessing to our families that way. We'll be a blessing to our friends will be a blessing to the fellowship of faith. That needs to be a priority. Living as uh, heavenly citizens then is an imitating way of life, but it's also a contrasting way of life. No, not much saddens Paul in this letter. That's why we find this to be such a remarkable letter. He rejoices always, but remarkably, what does bring him to tears is that some people don't believe it matters how they live before the Lord. And he calls them the enemies of the cross of Christ. And it goes back to, what is the enemy of the cross of 
Christ. The enemy of the cross of Christ is an enemy of humility and obedience. Of humility and obedience. Such are people who, who don't appreciate what Christ has done to save. And they don't need Him in their pride. Or they don't appreciate the impact the cross of Christ should then have on their lives. The cross of Christ, as we mentioned, is the ultimate selfless and humble and obedient act where one considered oneself better or considered others better than himself. And the enemy of the cross of Christ is the person who's only thinking about himself. And he confuses liberty with license to do whatever he wants. And that's being, of course, self-absorbed, self-centered, selfish, self-aggrandizing. You're undisciplined. You, you, you desire only to satisfy whatever you feel like doing and having. And that's life for them. That's it. And their God, as the passage tells us, is simply to satisfy their appetite. Their God is their stomach, is the way he puts it. The things that they should be ashamed of doing and being are the very things they brag about. They brag about, brag about their behavior when they should be ashamed of their behavior. They come out of the closet, as they say, and, and they're proud of shameful behavior. And it's a spirit that doesn't consider what it has done shamefully as deserving of penitence. Because there's no reason to be ashamed. And there's no reason for forgiveness. So what if I live like this or that? Because everybody does it now. Or a lot of people do it now. And that's it, isn't it? More and more people are doing it. Or we might say, well, everybody does that. You know, boys and girls, you can sometimes catch that with your parents, right? Well, why can't I do this? Because everybody else is doing that. And your mom might say, or your dad might say, but if everybody jumps off a cliff, are you going to do that too? But see, it's the shameful now that's worthy of imitation. Everybody's doing it. More and more people are doing it. I'm just doing like everybody else is. And your conscience gets so feared that it doesn't even bother you anymore. And of course, that could be with anything, right? You stop worshiping regularly. You get involved immorally on all kinds of planes. You live out of control. You live to eat rather than eat to live for the Lord. And everything that you do is simply for you. And Paul says that the end of that kind of selfishness is destruction and that one's mind that way is on earthly things. To have your mind on earthly things is not that we don't do things here on earth. Instead of it's this way, and it, 
having your mind on earthly things is to live without any lasting hope or vision. This life is all there is, and when it's over, it's over. And instead of the model being to live as Christ and to die as his gain, the motto is to live as self and then we die. To live is to live as those who were born here and as those who will die here, and that's the end of it. And the apostles basically saying here, we got to stay away from those kind of examples because that's a sad life. It doesn't inspire the heavenly life. It's all around us, of course. Live for the moment, party your life away, and find your joy not in the Lord. Don't find your joy in what God has told you to do in being in submission to Him, being in appreciation for the great salvation He's given to you, but simply to take pleasure in whatever floats your boat. Let's eat and drink because tomorrow we die. And Paul says, there isn't any joy in that. That's a sad life. It brings me to tears. And it, and it would. It brings, it, it brings people to tears who are in his position to see that. And Paul says that we have to live like people who believe that we have something better in store. And such a better thing should have its impact on how we live here and now. Because no matter who we are, we either live as citizens of this world or we live as citizens of heaven where the risen Christ dwells. And Christians are called to be heavenly citizens who anticipate a better day. And that's really our third, and that is our third point. Uh, that it, it's an anticipatory life as well, just living as heavenly citizens. Paul speaks about change that's coming to the people of God in Jesus Christ. Christ for whom we await and who is in heaven will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorified body. The hope of Christ's return tomorrow to change us physically is what is to dictate our contrastingly godly, heavenly behavior today. And one reason that people live sensually today and immorally today is because they believe that it really doesn't matter how one should live because we die in the end anyway. Now, they may not always admit to that, but in reality, that's what they're doing. And the Christian says, it does matter how I live in this life. Otherwise, life doesn't matter. But it does matter how we live in this life because we don't die in the end anyway. We have new life to come and that new life already has its place in our lives today in how we live. And that's why life matters. The new life today anticipates the resurrected life of tomorrow. And that's what the, the 17th Lord's stage says too. Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. In our new life in Christ, we seek godly change in our lives today. As those who anticipate the completely changed life for ourselves tomorrow at the resurrection. 
and seek godly lives now because we have new life in the resurrection of Jesus. We, we also seek godly lives now in the power, in that power, because we're looking forward with hope to the resurrection change that Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, will give us. And we know it's coming because Jesus Christ not only is raised, but he reigns in heaven. And the very power by which he subjects all things to himself. By that power, he'll resurrect us when we're in him. If every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, if he can subject all things, the totality of the powers of the universe, then nothing is going to keep him from transforming our bodies, our lowly bodies, into his glorious, into glorious bodies when he comes again. And so when we live that life that's worth imitating, and that's something we have to think about, is my life worth imitating? And when we live in contrast to the world that doesn't have any vision for eternity and no joy in the everlasting life that Jesus Christ gives, every good and godly and Christ-like thing that we do proclaims to the world that we're looking forward not to death, but to resurrection. And by those actions, we're looking forward and heavenward to our own resurrection that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who sleep as guaranteed. And communion anticipates that as well as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and we anticipate that great heavenly feast that belongs to all of God's people in Christ. Now that'll mean, of course, that we'll, we'll be living as those who in contrast to the world, world will be aliens and strangers, as people who will be different in the world, but don't you want to live in a way that's going to make a difference? Our values will be different, the way we look at the world is going to be different, the way we look at our lives is going to be different, the way our behavior is going to be different, and the world will look at that and say, boy, that's, that's odd. You spend time in prayer, you spend time in worship, you seek forgiveness of your sins, you call them sins. You seek to live for others. You seek to live for God. You work hard at school. School's starting up again. You know, boys and girls, you've got that calling to, to give it your best. Teachers, the same. The workplace, the home. You give honor where honor's due. You want to treat your wife with reverence. You want to treat your husband with respect. You want to honor your father and mother. You're learning to be content whatever the circumstance. And why do you want to be like that anyway? What makes you different? It's your risen Savior. He's raised for your justification. He's given me a new life to live and a certain hope of everlasting resurrected life. That's why. And that's the only reason why. And that's why my mind's not on earthly things in heaven where my citizenry is and where my risen Savior Lord is and from where he'll come and glorify my body at the resurrection I've got, a, I've got reason to live a godly life a life worthy of modeling I'm living for my Savior and I like my Savior I love my Savior for all that he's given me and all that he'll give me at the resurrection I live like a citizen of heaven because that's what I am.
makes all the difference in the way I live, and it makes life worth living. I pray that it will make all the difference for you and me, not just because we, we believe in the resurrection of Christ, as which, which we're called, but because we, we've come to believe and appreciate what the resurrection has meant to us and will. Amen. We're going to take a moment to... Uh,